Welcome to the Real Life Fitness Stories podcast. I'm your host, Scott Roberts. Stick around for inspiring real-life stories of incredible resilience and achievement. Thank you for listening. Let's be inspired. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another series, episode of the Real Life Fitness Stories podcast. I've got another amazing guest for you, the wonderful Jody Spencer Hobson. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm good. Yeah, it's um, it's been a long time, hasn't it, since we've um, had a chat, but yeah. We're going to get into that because I was going to surprise you. Well, not surprise you with something, but okay. <laughs> get into that in a minute. But right. do, you, do you just want to give everyone a little introduction to yourself and then I'll just explain exactly what we're going to talk about? Yeah, so um, I'm Jodie. I'm 35. I um, work very long hours in the TV and film industry as a hair and makeup designer. Um, and obviously we are here today to discuss um, my health and what, ha- what I've been through over the past few months. Thank you very much for not ruining my introduction there. <laughs> so Jody has very kindly come on to talk about how at the age of 34, doctors told her they'd found a 4.6 centimetre tumour in her brain. This was after years of various symptoms. That was in December of last year, 2022. March of this year, she underwent brain surgery to remove the tumour. Now, the bit I'm going to surprise you with. So... I've known Jodie for quite a while. She was a member of the Pure Gym I used to work at before moving out to Marbella. Um, she has been an online um, client of mine. I'm just going to go back to our messages. So obviously to set this podcast up, um, there's been a few messages back and forth, but our old conversations actually came up. Yeah. And I don't know if you've seen them. But no, I haven't. Right. 27th of May 2021 um I just sent you a message saying how are you getting on um I presume it was after we'd finished just saying how's things your message to me was speaking about the symptoms and stuff and how far they went back I've been getting stuck into the gym which has been great I saw a specialist for my migraines and I've ended up cutting dairy out blah 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 we won't get into the dairy situation but migraines were coming up in our conversations well over two years ago now yeah do you remember that yeah I remember it well yeah in fact I remember training with you and saying to you probably on a few occasions you know I can't train today because I've got a migraine or I just don't feel right and I think it was when I was training with you that the doctors gave me an original diagnosis of fibromyalgia yeah um which now has been completely written off obviously um but yeah that's you know around about that time is when everything started to sort of come because I've suffered from migraines for years and I mean years since I was a teenager on and off um and I think it was when I was training with you that everything started to come back again um, around about that sort of time is when I noticed that I was starting to get symptoms, migraines were getting more frequent and things like that. So 
it's really interesting to actually see it with a, a timestamp on it. Yeah, because w- when I read that, I kind of started thinking, I remember this coming up quite a bit. Um, yeah. Now, obviously, with you, you, you touched on your job. There's a lot, the hours that you, that you don't work normal hours, do you? No. Long hours, nights, not the healthiest of working environments. Um, I can say that you may be not be able to, I don't know. But from my memory of working with you, it was always trying to manage your schedule and your energy levels. There was another message about your sleep as well. Yeah. So, and it, I suppose when, when that's going on, it's very easy to just look back and think, oh, it's just work. It's just work. Absolutely. Yeah. And there was obviously something else going on. Definitely. That's it. And I think because almost when I would go and see my doctor, I would almost give that excuse readily available to my doctor as well and say, you know, but I work these, you know, 12, 14, 16 hour days, depending on what job I'm doing. I can be on a day shoot and then on a night shoot and hours flipping back and forth. You know, some nights I'm getting four hours sleep because I've got to actually get to work, things like that. You know, so I was almost making excuses for the symptoms and fully blaming everything on my lifestyle, really. Um, You know, which I guess to not discredit doctors too much is why they just said, well, this just sounds like typical migraines and, and then also ended up with because if you look up the symptoms of fibromyalgia, they are quite similar to the symptoms that you would get from other conditions like brain tumours and things like that. So, you know, I can see how they got to that conclusion. Um, But my biggest thing now is one of the things that I like to try and promote to people is push for an MRI scan because if I'd have had an MRI scan a lot sooner, then obviously the tumour would have been found a lot earlier. For people to do that, what what symptoms should they be looking for? And, and I suppose over an extended period of time. Yeah, so any anyone suffering for an extended period of time with, with headaches, migraines of, of any kind, basically, that especially if you notice a change in those headaches as well, you know, a change in the pattern, because that's what actually led to my MRI scan. There was a change in the pattern of my migraines. And I, I was at work one day, actually, and one of my really good friends is the manager at my uh, GP surgery, which is really lucky for me. And normally I just sort of ring him up and say, I'm at work and I've got a migraine and I haven't got any medication with me. And he will send some to a pharmacy nearby And the doctor that happened to be on that day, um, she had said to him, I actually want to see her in clinic if I can. I'd like to review her. So he rang me and he said, I can't just get you any medication today. The doctor wants to see you. And I'm sort of, I'm in Manchester filming. So I'm like rolling my eyes thinking, oh my God, I've got to get home from Manchester. I've got a migraine and this, that and the other, you know. And actually that, that, whole situation is is what saved my life basically because she is the one who 
noticed that there was a change in my symptoms. So my migraine pattern had been quite similar, basically. And then I'd started to get a lot of pressure in my sinuses. Um, so I was waking up, be, not being able to breathe out of my nose, um, just pressure along my forehead constantly. Um, and she said, because of this change in, in obviously the, the pain with your headaches and things like that, I'd just like to send you for an MRI scan. But she did say, you know, I'm not worried, um, but I just want to get it checked out because I can see that you've, you've never had one, you know, and you've, you've had migraines for a long, long time now. So let, let's have a look at what's going on. How easy is it for someone just to push for an MRI scan? not very easy from what people have told me um, and obviously my own experience because a lot of a lot of people that I've spoken to are so there's there's groups on Facebook obviously for um, brain tumors and the type of brain tumor that I had and people mention going to A&E with um, you know severe headaches and things and being sent straight for a CT scan in in A&E Last year alone, I was probably in A&E at least four times with a headache that I could, I was being sick, I couldn't walk properly, my vision was blurry, um, you know, my, my husband was with me all, all the time and he, he can vouch that I was just given medication and sent home. You know, one one time I was I was kept in and, and monitored overnight and given fluids and things like that. Um, but not once did anybody send me, not even just for an, M not for an MRI scan, just even a CT scan, which at how big the tumour was at that point last year, a CT scan would have definitely picked it up as well. So, you know, from my experience, it's not, it's not very easy to get a scan and I would never have known to push for that at the time, but knowing what I know now, I just tell everybody, look, just just tell them that you want a scan of some sort. If you're worried, you are entitled to it. And, you know, at the end of the day, if 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 a medical professional is refusing you a scan and then it turns out to be something as serious as, as this, they obviously could be liable for that. You know, so I always say to everybody, if you're being refused a scan, have them write that down on a note on your notes and say why they are not allowing you to go for a scan at that point. Because then if anything like this did come up in the future, you would have that on record that you know you you had pushed for that earlier. So before we get to last December, obviously we've spoken and I know how it affected your your training and all the things we were trying to work on those symptoms you've been talking about how did it affect your everyday life so work relationship you know, the week socially um what what general impact did it have do you know what I look back now and I think I was in like I, I was like a robot I was just sort of plodding along basically and I was just getting on with it I had sort of been told so much just to you know you've got migraines so that's that's just life now basically so I just adapted to that and I there's so many occasions the girls on my team will say I've been in work with full-blown migraines and still done a full day's work you know 
And I look back now and it's only now that I realise how unwell I actually was and how much I actually neglected my own health because I didn't, I feel I didn't do enough to maybe push for more to be done. Socially was a massive thing for me. I was completely withdrawn. You know, I didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't going out. I wasn't doing anything. You know, my, my husband will, will say, I, I just had no energy to do anything. I would work and I would come home and I would sleep and that would be it. If, if there was something planned nine times out of 10, I would be cancelling because I either had a migraine or I just didn't have the energy to do it. Um, I don't know now looking back how I even, I trained probably two, maybe three times a week in the lead up to my wedding where I was actually working part-time um, because I'd done it on purpose like that because I knew that if I was working full-time, there is no way I would have been able to find the time to go to the gym and, you know, prep my food and things like that. Obviously, it was my wedding and I wanted to feel amazing. So, you know, I knew that working full-time, I would have never have been able to do it. So I purposefully worked part-time to do that and yeah I just I just can't believe what a different person I was and I didn't even realize it I was I was almost in probably I'd say the three to sort of four months before they actually found the tumor I was actually in a state of probably depression that I didn't realize was actually happening well it's just when it's gone on for that long you just kind of learn to live with it I suppose yeah definitely even though it's your normal and and as looking back as abnormal as it sounds when you've been living like that for such such a long time it just becomes a normality doesn't it yeah yeah especially when you're being told by medical professionals you know this is just life basically you know I hadn't even been referred to a neurologist or anything you know um yeah I, I was just I was just prescribed medication after medication and that was it you know so and I was in the bracket of having enough migraines for it to be classed as a chronic condition and for it to be actually classed as a disability um you know I was getting them at least once a week for about four days in a row um again probably the three to four months before they actually found the tumor that's that's the period where it had got really bad and I was working through that as well you know um and again I just I put it down to work so you've mentioned your wedding a few times I think it's actually important in all this because you got married quite recently didn't you so yeah when was the when was the wedding it was June the 25th last year. Right, so married in June, October of that year is when you was referred for an MRI. And yeah. then December the 7th, you had the MRI and that's basically when they told you the results. Yeah, so the October is when uh, the situation that I've just spoken about where I was at work and I, they, they made me go in for an appointment and then she referred me for the MRI scan. So then it took about six weeks for that MRI scan appointment 
to actually happen. Um, and bearing in mind this doctor that I saw, she actually wasn't my normal doctor. And I had just switched to somebody new because, um, well, I was fed up of, of having the same doctor tell me the same thing over and over again, you know. Um, so it was all a strange sort of series of events that happened at the same time. Um, so yeah, and then I went for the MRI scan and I remember it, it's, it's so, everything is so like vivid to me when I think back to that day, you know, and I was on the phone to um, one of my team from work because obviously I'd had to come out of work to go for the MRI scan. And then my phone started ringing with my doctor's surgery. So I had to like hang up basically. And I answered the phone and that's when my doctor said, um, you know, and we've had your results back from your MRI scan. And I said, oh, I only had it this morning sort of thing, you know, and obviously with the NHS, that's not sort of the speed you expect things to happen. So already I was thinking something's not right. And he said, are you available to come in and see me? And I said, yeah, sure, when? And he's like, now. <laughs> and I'm like, right, okay. And I had said, right, I'm, I am panicking a bit. I need, my husband will be home in about 20 minutes. I don't know if I can wait that long. And he said, well, they have found something on your scan. Um, and at this point in my head, I was thinking he was going to tell me that I had something um, like MS because the symptoms that I had were very similar, basically, to something like uh, multiple sclerosis. And I thought that's what they found. They've, they, you know, they found lesions relating to something like that. Um, and then I just said, are you able to tell me what it is? Because I'm going to go into a panic attack if I have to sit here for 20 minutes wondering what it is. And he just said, I wouldn't normally do this over the phone. He said, but you have got a brain tumour and I cannot even describe, your whole world just goes silent, you know, because the only brain tumour that I'd ever heard of at that point was worst case scenario, you know, like a glioblastoma, which is, you know, people are given months to live when they have a diagnosis like that so I was like in complete shock my doctor's talking to me I couldn't hear anything that he was saying my hearing just went everything I was just and I just said I'll I'll I'll, I'll be with you in you know five minutes um and I rang my husband who was driving home and he answered the phone all cheery like I'm I'm just gonna go to the shop and get something for tea like what do you fancy and I was like you need to come home you know and he was like why and I said I've just had a phone call off the doctor I need to I need to go in and he just said what's happened and I said well you're driving so you need to just come home and he said well I'm gonna drive even faster if you don't tell me what's going on <laughs> so then I had to break the news to him over the phone and um yeah he's um wondering how he got away with them um, not having a speeding ticket basically on that journey home um so we went into the and saw my uh, doctor and yeah he and then he talked us through everything basically and he my my doctor had actually said to my friend that works at the surgery 
that was one of the most difficult conversations of his entire career. In what way, why? He said, young couple, you know, sat across from him, um, you know, t telling a young woman that they've got a brain tumour that, and the only way that it can be treated is, is by a surgery, which is just terrifying to hear. Um, you know, I just, at the time I remember thinking, oh, can I not have radiotherapy? And even now I know what I know about radiotherapy and I weigh up the pros and cons and think, actually, I think I was more lucky that I was able to have the surgery and have it fully removed without having to have any radiotherapy. Um, but at the time, it's so daunting somebody sitting across from you and telling you that you're going to have probably one of the most serious surgeries that a person can have, you know. When you did go in to see the doctor, how long was you in there? Um, I think we were in there for about 45 minutes, I'd and, say. And did it help? Like, obviously, you've, you've gone in there or, or you've both gone in there upset, shitting yourself. Um, how was you coming out of there? Was you reassured in any way? Or at least I suppose you had a bit more information? Yeah, I mean, again, really strange thing that happened. So I just mentioned I, I just switched to this particular doctor and I'd, I'd only seen him once. And he actually said to me, um, I've, I've had this type of brain tumour that you've got. Oh, really? So he had, yeah, he had had the same brain tumour. And I think, I might be wrong, but I'm sure he's had two um, craniotomies um, because I don't think that his could be fully removed. So it had sort of grown back at one point. So it was bizarre, you know, I'm thinking, how? <laughs> Was that reassuring or not? Well, I guess so, because in, in, the, in one breath, you know, a lot of people talk about seeing their GP about something like this. And as much as some are very helpful, they don't really know a lot about it because it's a, a, a specialist area, you know, whereas I was getting first hand information from somebody who had actually been through it, you know, and he was extremely compassionate which not everybody gets surprisingly in, in these situations. And, you know, he, he told, he didn't sugarcoat anything for me, which I think was really important um, because it was a benign tumor, what they, he said to me, they are pretty certain that it's benign, but they will not know until they have taken it out and done a biopsy. So there was always that thought in the back of my head that it could have been something else. Um, but he said that they can tell basically from the sort of shape and like characteristics of, of a tumour on a, on a scan, they can tell basically if it's likely to be benign or not. Um, you know, but he also made it clear that just because it was benign, it didn't mean that it wasn't a very serious thing to 
be happening. So, what was said about where it was in the brain? Now, obviously, so four point six centimeters is obviously that's a big tumor, right? Yeah, two inches. So, in regards to the size and where it was, what was kind of their information and feedback on that? Well, basically, a lot of the symptoms that I had been getting made made a lot of sense. Um, so, I, I don't know if everybody knows this, but right side of your brain controls the left side of your body. So. I, I wasn't aware of that when I, I went in. So I was expecting the tumour to be on the left side because that's where I always get my migraines. They're always in my left eye, back of my neck on the left-hand side, you know, and I was I had said to my husband, I bet I can tell you exactly where this tumour is, you know, and then when he said it's in the right frontal lobe of your brain, I was like, oh, that's strange. And then he said, well, you know, actually it controls the left side of your body. so that's this does make sense and I had been getting things like uh, tingling and, and numbness down my arms and legs that were it was worse on the left side um you know and, and all of my head pain migraines was always on the left hand side as well um but also in work it had become a little bit of a, a running joke because I was having some um speech problems uh, which I still have a bit of now things like word finding uh, memory can be a bit tough for me sort of short-term memory um, concentration I find it hard to retain information at the minute as well um, which I was having previous as well which I realise now um, and all of that is related to the right front of the brain so a lot of it made sense um you know I was I would be having a conversation and I would say the complete wrong word and not know I very confidently would say the wrong word you know and it wouldn't be till afterwards when I'm looking at everybody and going what just happened you know and it was a bit of a running joke at work but then actually made a lot of sense as to why these things were happening to me quite a lot um so yeah it's I got a lot of strangely I got a lot of uh, comfort I guess out of this diagnosis because a lot of things just fell into place you know a lot of things made sense and I could start to see a future now beyond the symptoms and hope that you know the surgery was going to go well and that eventually I would feel somewhat normal again yeah, in a strange way, that that day was probably rock bottom for you. But yeah, it, it's also the start of hopefully what what a, a new future for you. Yeah, exactly. And um, in the information you sent over, you said that if it hadn't have been found and it had got bigger, it could have got to a point where they couldn't operate. How far do you reckon you was from that? Well. A 4.6 centimetre tumour is classed as a large tumour. Um, they take into consideration things like your age, you know, so they thought that this tumour had been growing for at least 10 years. So a meningioma is a slow growing brain tumour. So, you know, I could have had it 
10 years, 15 years, I could have had it 20 years. Um, so it's just one of those things really where like, sorry, I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> this is what happens to me. <laughs> That's all right, because so have I. Because one, <laughs> one thing I've found doing these podcasts, I'm looking at notes, I'm trying to think of the next question, and then listening. And trying to listen at the same time. So you're, you're doing much better than I am. <laughs> I'm going to jump forwards to, so the MRI, you were, you were told about everything in December. The operation wasn't until March. Yeah. <sighs> Obviously, we've spoken about the size of the tumour. That's a long period of time. To me, that seems a long period of time. Yeah. So, is it just due to the NHS and the, the, the waiting time and everything? And Yeah, so... How was that three, three-ish month period? Within a week of my diagnosis, I was sent this letter. So even though they thought that the tumour was benign, you are treated as a cancer patient because obviously they can't be sure. And brain tumours are kind of in this category of, of unknown. Um, so I had the letter that everybody who has, has you know, suspected cancer is sent with the two week wait. And it says on this letter, you know, you're entitled to, um, you have a legal right to a two-week wait of two-week referral um and you should be seen within that two-week period i waited four weeks to be seen by a, cons uh, a consultant um that four weeks was the worst part because until i'd seen a neurosurgeon and because it's his speciality you know and I, it was it was him that i wanted to speak to so until I'd seen him and got answers from him, my mind was all over the place. You know, um, you convince yourself that they might have got it wrong and it's something else, you know. So, yeah, I was after it had got to two weeks, I was ringing up. And so this was over Christmas and I kept give, being given the excuse of, oh, well, it's, you know, it's Christmas and we've got a lot of staff off and, and this, that and the other. And I'm like, right, I, I get that. But, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I was told that I had a really big brain tumour. <laughs> so, you know, um, and to be fair, most of the people that I spoke to were really helpful. Um, but it doesn't, doesn't, make, it doesn't make the waiting any easier. Um, How was that Christmas for you? strange very strange um because we thought that I would have been seen before Christmas you know so we would have some answers and Christmas would have been a bit more enjoyable in that sense um but we just had to try and forget about it and you know just try and have a nice day with family basically um you know obviously things are priorities are shifted very quickly when something like this happens so Christmas with family was just all both me and my husband needed at that time um so yeah I then saw my surgeon in the January 
and I'd actually gone back to work at this point um and I think it was on the first day that I went back to work which I was like well it's just typical isn't it I've had all this time off over Christmas and you know the my uh, my first appointment is the day that I go back to work so I saw him and so that was the appointment that did help because he was very you know very positive and very just I am the type of person where I just need answers I need all of the information to to be able to feel settled about something some people like to shut off and ignore a situation I like to know absolutely I need to become an expert overnight basically on something so you know both me and my husband asked a lot of questions I saw my scan for the first time which was crazy I don't know if you've seen a picture of it I did I did put it on um, uh, yeah it you know it's it's it, it's there you can see it it's it's a, it's a big big tumor um yeah and so he basically said look whilst this is not an emergency situation where you needed to be rushed in overnight for an emergency operation he said it is relatively urgent because of the size of the tumor we can't really let this go on now I'd been really fortunate because my tumor had got big without me having any seizures um and now looking back at the things like numbness tingling things like that that I was getting through um, my arms and legs that could have been onset of seizure activity potentially um but I was very lucky in the sense that I hadn't actually had a seizure. So I didn't need to go on. A lot of people are put on anti-seizure medication before the um, surgery, which I didn't have to go on. And people are also put on steroids, which again, I didn't have to go on, which I'm so unbelievably grateful for because I have heard that recovery wise, those two medications can make the recovery a lot harder. You mentioned the seizures in those notes you sent me um, and how people with much smaller tumours can potentially get the seizures. In a weird way, if you had had a seizure much earlier, would that have meant they probably found the tumour earlier? Yeah, yeah, definitely. That is how most of these brain tumours are found because people are rushed into hospital having had a seizure. Um, women of my sort of age there's been a lot of situations where they have been pregnant so these tumors can have hormone receptors um, and obviously pregnancy that would then speed along the growth of the tumor because of um, hormones so a lot of women around my sort of age are they have a seizure whilst pregnant and that they're you know the tumor is found whilst pregnant and that is some of the stories that I have read are just unbelievable you know having to um have an early c-section you know and then 10 days later rushed in for brain surgery so not only have you had major surgery from the c-section you're then having brain surgery and then you've got also to think of it from the people around you've got a husband who is 
looking after a newborn baby and also a, you know a wife girlfriend who has had two major surgeries within the space of a month you know so again all of these things um sort of just <laughs> I, my surgeon said to me look nobody wants a brain tumor but if you're going to get one this is the one that you want <laughs> <laughs> which sounds really strange yeah so because of just how lucky I guess I'd been with everything um on the lead up to it you know because I, I had been extremely lucky with with all of these things you know I we we want a family I could have easily have been pregnant you know um when it was found so you know all of the situations it's just really bizarre to me how everything happened when it did um and yet if it had been left to get to you know, people have tumours where they, even though they're benign, they're grade one, they're inoperable because they've got too big, they've attached themselves to a certain nerve, um, you know, something that is just makes it too complicated to do the operation, you know, people have, have died from these benign brain tumours, you know, so yeah, it's, it's difficult because I think people hear the word benign and sort of go, oh, it's fine, you know, but then I, <laughs> you sort of left saying, well, you know, do, do you want one? Because <laughs> it's not fun. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, just the thought of the surgery alone. Um, yeah. We're going to get to the surgery in a minute, but obviously there's, it's not just you going through this. Uh, we mentioned your husband, newly married, family, friends, in the previous podcast, we spoke to Janie's sister, who's who'd gone through chemotherapy twice um, over a ten-year period, and yeah, I've listened to her podcast actually. Through, through speaking to her, obviously, it's one of the worst things you ever go through, but you've just got to go through it. You know, you've just got to deal with it, turn up, go through, do what they say, and go go through it. The people around you it probably affects people a bit, those a bit differently. Um, yeah. Don't know what to say, sometimes saying the wrong things, trying to be supportive. How was everyone around you? Um, yeah, and how did it, how, how did it affect them from your point of view? In some ways, I don't know if this sounds strange, but it's, it sometimes feels a little bit easier being the person going through it. Um, because you kind of have a plan. You, I got myself into a headspace where I was really positive. Um, I was really motivated. My house was the cleanest it's ever been. I sorted every cupboard out before my surgery. You know, it was, it was bizarre. I was just in this. Someone had said to me, um, a, a nurse friend of theirs said, who works with cancer patients, she said that genuinely the patients who have a positive attitude about their treatment and their condition generally recover better. And that stuck with me. So from that point onwards, I was just, you know, I've got to keep positive in the, the lead up to this. 
So I think that that is a lot harder for everybody else because they don't know what I'm feeling. They don't know what it feels like to have the brain tumor. You know, if I'd got a migraine in, in before the diagnosis, people were understanding, you know, and, and sympathetic, but now it was a completely different story. If I said, oh my, I've got a headache today, or, you know, it was, you know, it was a big panic. So yeah, it, for my husband, it was difficult, especially the day of my surgery. He really went through it. You know, we joke now that I was blissfully asleep and unaware of everything that was going on. And he was pacing up and down our kitchen, you know, waiting for a phone call. And unfortunately, the NHS failed us on that day with him because we'd given over phone numbers, we'd said, please, please call as soon as I'm out of surgery, you know, just let him know that I'm all right. He can tell my mom, my dad, everybody that I'm fine. And he was ringing back and forth. Nobody rang him. Right. Yeah, they'd misplaced his phone number. Um, he was ringing around different wards. He was being passed from pillar to post, you know, and then eventually, just as I was being wheeled onto um, the high dependency ward, he happened to ring that ward, um, and the nurse said she's she's just come onto the ward now, and she handed me the phone, and he just absolutely broke down on the phone, you know, because he just started to think worst case scenario because he he was just getting told, oh, um you know, I can't give you any information. I'm not qualified to give you any information. So I'll have to get someone to bring you back. And he's thinking at this point, we'd been told that the surgery would be about three to four hours. And I think it had got onto sort of about five hours at this point. So he was thinking, what on earth has, has gone on, you know? So yeah, he, I think the people around the person going through something like this don't get enough credit for actually how it affects them mentally. Um, and I think it's really important to make sure that those people get support as well. Talk us through this, well, I know you was asleep, but talk us through the gory details of the surgery, exactly what happens. Yeah, so, um, one of the worst things was I went in for the surgery on the Tuesday and I'd hyped myself up and I was ready to go. And um, I was sent home because, um, and I mean through obviously no fault of anybody's, but there had been a really terrible car accident, not to, I was at Preston Royal, which is one of the specialists um, in the area for me. And there'd been a really bad car accident and, and two people had come in with brain injuries and needed not only my surgeon, but also my theatre space. So um, my surgeon actually came to me personally and apologised and just said, there's nothing that I can do. And obviously I was understanding because if that was me, I would definitely, I would definitely want to be treated there and then. So um, he said, we'll reschedule for Thursday, which, was amazing because it doesn't normally happen that quickly. If, if you sent home, you know, you could be waiting another two, three weeks, but obviously with me, I was in that urgent sort of bracket as well. So he was quite conscious about getting it done. Um, 
so then it was like Groundhog Day on the Wednesday, um, reliving the day before surgery again. And so went back in. And then the thing that threw me on the Thursday was that the routine of what happened was different when I went back on the Thursday. So I was put on the Tuesday, I was put in a quiet sort of cubicle with a really comfy chair by myself, relaxed environment. When I went back on the Thursday, I was sort of shoved into a room with loads of different people who were having all types of surgery. You know, someone was having surgery on a broken arm. You know, someone was having, I don't know, like a something done to the toe. You know, and I'm sat in there thinking, how am I sat with these people right now? Like, you know, no, not that anybody's more important than anybody when it comes to surgery, but at the same time, I was just thrown. I was thrown by the fact that it was just different, and that that just wasn't good for my mindset because that there'd been that change. So. Anyway, I ended up speaking to a nurse and just saying, you know, I'm, I'm panicking. I'm, I'm, I'm here to have brain surgery. Um, I cannot sit. There's, there's just so much going on in that room. And at this point as well, I was quite badly affected by um, a lot of noise and lights and things like that. So it was just all contributing to me just be, starting to feel anxious. And anyway, they were great and they put me by myself and, and whatnot, but it took until I was there at eight o'clock in the morning it took until 2 30 that afternoon for me to actually go in for the surgery um and it's all really strangely casual someone just comes to get you you know you've got a gown on I still got my trainers on and they just walk you because I'm able to walk you know just walk down to and once I got into the room and I'm looking around and there's all this like scary medical equipment and then it's like take your shoes off and get on the bed sort of thing you know and it's it's the weirdest thing um and I'd been pretty fine up until that point where I led on the bed basically and I I just remember putting my head back and the nurse speaking to me you know what do you do for a job this that and the other um she'd started saying you know oh who have you worked with and um I was telling her that I'd been working on Brassic and I've worked, been working with uh, Michelle and she's like oh well no pressure then because we've got we've got precious cargo we've got Michelle Keegan's makeup artist sort of thing <laughs> um and that's sort of the last thing I remember because they obviously give you the uh the uh, anesthetic like without you really knowing just to keep you as calm as possible but I do remember just before then I'd got a little bit upset and um, the nurse walked out of the room and then in came my surgeon and he stood at the end of the bed and he said, you all right? And I said, I, I don't know. And he said, listen, you're going to be absolutely fine. So that, <laughs> whether he meant it or not, <laughs> it helped, you know, so. And I think I was really lucky to have such a compassionate surgeon because I don't think it always goes that way. I think these people are so amazing and intelligent, you know, and they but they have a job to do to stay focused. And I think a lot of the time you don't get the two combined. So I was really, really grateful for that. And so, yeah, and then 
the next thing I know, I'm, I'm, I'm in recovery and there's a nurse in my ear saying, you know, you're waking up now. So, and I couldn't believe it. You know, there's that time just passes and then you're awake. But, you know, I was, I was quite unwell coming off the anaesthetic. Um, I was on quite strong painkillers, you know, I was having um, oxycodone through IV at that point because the pain was just like, I, I can't even describe it really, but yeah, they got it under control quite quickly, but I, um, yeah, I was, I was in a bit of a bad way <clears throat> to start with just because I'd had, I was quite sick coming off the anaesthetic and that's what they said it was because I was unbelievably dehydrated. So they were trying to give me fluids through an IV, but all I wanted to do was just drink gallons of water and obviously you can't do that. Um, but they would put, when they actually took me back to high dependency, they, they put water next to me and I was just like chugging this water because I was so thirsty. And then I was just throwing up for like hours. Oh really? Yeah, so that wasn't great because I couldn't really lift my head up properly. Um, I don't know if this is too much information, but I had a drain. I had a drain in my head as well. So they put a drain into your head to drain out any um, fluid, basically. <laughs> um, and that is bizarre because I once that actually got removed the next day when um, my husband came to visit me <laughs> and they, the nurses just come into your little area, close the curtains and... And then I said to my husband, are you, do you, are you going to be all right? <laughs> like watching this happen or, and they like were saying, we haven't got a bed for you. So don't pass, pass out sort of thing. Um, and they just take it out there and then. But having that removed, like was actually like having a weight lifted because I realized it was the drain being in that was making me feel very dizzy and just sort of heavy and, and strange. So once they took that out, I felt a bit more mobile. Um, so, so that- Whereabouts was the drain? So obviously they've cut you open to get the tumor out. They've stitched you back up and what, everything. So where was the drain in relation to all that? So if you can imagine like a, a horseshoe shape, like quite a big horseshoe, um, that was the incision that they'd made on my head and then there was on the right side towards the front there was kind of like this circle that you could see and that's where the drain was going into so obviously they had removed part of my skull and put it back and then there was a drain removing any fluid from that area basically underneath the skin and between the skull um yeah so it, it literally just got pulled out so it was strange because I was thinking am I gonna have to go back and have like another anesthetic to have this taken out like what how how do they do this sort of thing and they just came in and did it and I was like oh <laughs> but my head was numb at the time obviously they've used um like injection uh anesthetic as well like on my actual head so I couldn't feel any of it but it was just bizarre um yeah so it was from that point onwards I had a bit of a tough night after that um because then you're 
head basically has to get used to the change in pressure as well. So there is a bit of pressure build up, which is normal, but again, it's the weirdest feeling ever. And um, you can actually, <laughs> you can actually see your head moving up and down at this point. After the um, surgery, how long was you in hospital for? I was in hospital for four nights. Um, it was funny because, so I went in on the Thursday and then the Friday, I hadn't even had the drain taken out at this point. And the nurse is like, oh, you might be going home today. And I'm thinking, are you joking? Because I can't even get up, like, you know, and I was like worried. And I remember one of the nurses who was sat across from me watching another patient, she said, don't go home. She said, you're not ready and tell them that you're not ready to go home. She said, do not feel pushed out. And obviously they're just trying to get the bed space, you know. And so anyway, occupational um, therapy have to come round to check everybody um, that you can move your arms and that you can you know walk and things like that and they came around and they were like absolutely not I, I could just about stand up at, like out of bed if I put my legs over the side of the bed I could just about stand up holding on to them and I could lift my feet off the ground but I was extremely dizzy there's no way I could have gone any further I couldn't have walked out of the hospital I don't even think I could have been pushed out you know so um, they said, they called the shots basically as to whether somebody is ready to go home. And they said, no. Um, and I realized they were trying to get me home on the Friday because they don't um, discharge people over the weekend. So obviously that meant that I was in them the whole weekend. Um, but I definitely needed to stay and I needed to be in for the time that I was in. I felt, I definitely felt ready to go home when I went home. And that first week being back home, what was that like? I, the first couple of days, I probably just slept solidly. Um, yeah, I was still really slow on my feet. Um, still a little bit dizzy. And, you know, I had people, family who would come round and see me, things like that. Um, but yeah, I, was, I just remember being tired like I've never felt fatigue like that before um you know and then that that sort of did carry on but I can't remember what day it was but it was definitely that first week that I actually went for a walk with my husband just we've got a little park just um around the corner from our house and we just did one lap of that park together really slow um and I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that I just walked around the park and it felt like a massive achievement, you know? So it was a bizarre feeling to think, I never thought that walking this slow around a park would feel this massive to me, but it, it did, you know? Um, and also that week I ended up shaving all of my hair off as well because I was not left with a great hairstyle and um, I kind of just had like this patch of hair on the left hand side and then a patch at the back but they'd shaved 
pretty much the whole top and right hand section of my hair and I was so fed up of this they just put it in a plait with like an elastic band around it and I was so fed up of it so um yeah my husband ended up shaving the rest of my hair off for me which again was a bizarre feeling because I couldn't really feel my head properly at this point and we were having to be careful obviously around the incision and things like that um but again I've never felt I never thought I would feel good about shaving all of my hair off obviously it's a it's a big thing yeah I was gonna say how was you mentally with that because I presume you never had a bald head before no Um, um, (laughs) probably generalizing a bit here but you know being a woman your hairstyle is massively important especially in your job as well definitely did it affect you massively or was you just at the point of this is just what I need to do? Yeah, I, I'd kind of got myself into a mindset with my hair of, you know what, it's just hair at the end of the day. And if if I need to have my head shaved for my health, you know, and I, ju- I just, I'd, bizarrely, I thought I would be really bothered by it. Um, and I know it does bother a lot of women and I completely sympathise that not everyone can get into the same headspace that I had got into. But I kind of just got to the point where I thought it really doesn't matter. It's just hair at the end of the day, you know, and it'll grow back. And at the end of the day, I'm just grateful to be alive. So, you know, it's it's it was just it didn't bother me at all. I have moments now where it's growing back and I'm like. I'm fed up. I wish I had my hair back. You know, why did I have to have like lose all my hair, this, that, and the other? But yeah, very quickly I snapped myself out of it because yeah, it was just one of those things that was just part of the process, really. So we're about what four months since surgery. Yeah. Um, You said before we started, it's only really the last couple of weeks that you've started to feel yourself again as such talk us through that bit what where where do you feel yourself getting better and coming back to your old self and things like that yeah so I still have days where I have to take it easy this week actually in particular I've been doing a lot more resting because we've just actually been away and you know we were we did a lot of walking you know um which was great because I've recently been trying to do more exercise and things like that so in that sense I'm just I've got a lot more energy than I did have um really strange things like before the surgery or the diagnosis I would be asleep constantly (laughs) you know I I was like queen of napping you know I just if I had the opportunity to go to sleep for 10 minutes I would go to sleep now I don't feel that urge as much anymore and obviously I I do get it like I say I have a couple of days where I just think well I need to slow down a little bit um but that's been one of the biggest things for me where I thought oh I don't nap in the afternoon like obviously I'm, I'm off work at the minute and it's like I'm not I don't feel that urge to go for an afternoon sleep for like two hours which is just such a big thing for me 
Um, but just in myself as well, I feel, I mentioned before that I, I was sort of quite withdrawn from social situations, you know, and, and just in general from people and things like that. And I just feel more like I can, I want to go out and do stuff, you know, and I want to, I want to make plans. And, you know, if, if, if something's happening, I'm much more up for doing something, you know, um, I don't really drink or anything anymore, but, and normally that would have, I would have worried about that and, and been like, oh, you know, what are people going to think? And am I going to have a good time if I'm not having a drink? But now it's just like, I'm just grateful to be in the headspace where I actually want to go out and socialise and it's not even about alcohol for me. So saying that, just look over your left shoulder. What's been <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> for anyone not, who can't watch the video. <laughs> There's literally a massive rack of alcohol. Uh, <laughs> a lot of it's unopened for that reason. <laughs> I keep, I've spent the whole podcast looking over your shoulder. <laughs> you're, you're obviously someone that has been used to working hard, working long hours. I presume you've enjoyed your job. I, I know like every job has its downsides, but you enjoy your job. We've spoken about the gym. You, you've always been conscious about exercise. Not being able to do both work and the exercise side of things. Has that affected you? Are you just really looking forward to getting back into it? Yeah. Um, it's hard switching off because it's not like, obviously I'm freelance, so that, you know, there's, there's periods of time within my, job where I'll go from one job to another and I might have a few weeks off in between but I'm very much mentally prepared for that time and you know it's it's very welcomed you know because I'm probably really tired off the back of a really long job and I'm looking forward to relaxing and maybe going on holiday or something whereas this was just so out of the blue and not planned and yeah it's been difficult and one of the biggest things I think I have struggled with is so I'm not allowed to drive. So my driving license has been taken off me. Um, so it's, it's basically, it's because of seizures, basically, they worry that you could have a seizure after the surgery. Um, I fortunately haven't, but you have to wait at least six months after having brain surgery before the DVLA will give you your license back even though my surgeon has said that he hasn't got any worries, um, he would have let me drive, you know, six weeks after my surgery. He was that confident. But it's just DVLA rules over here in the UK that you, you can't drive for six months. So I get my driving license back at the beginning of September. And that has been one of the biggest challenges for me because just... I mean, the gym that I go to is, you know, a, a 20 minute bus journey away and then about a 10 minute walk, you know, and yeah, that's doable for, for most people. But for someone whose energy is on a bit of a, you know, a shorter ba battery life, you know, 
having to do that journey, then go into the gym and do what I want to do and then have to do that journey back. It's a lot to process mentally. And I have to, I would have to plan all that out. Um, you know, but I have on a Wednesday, I've been getting up because my husband goes to the gym before work on a Wednesday. Um, so I've been getting up with him and going into the gym at like seven. So I do that one session and then I have a spin bike at home. So I've been doing some sort of online spinning classes and things like that. And then obviously I've got my dogs. So I try and walk them as much as possible. And that's kind of how I've tried to just be a bit more active without pushing myself too much because I'm very aware that that's what does set me back is if I do too much. What have, what are you doing in the gym? Have, have they told you to avoid anything at the moment or? Just... Um, not not now. I've been given the the sort of all clear for for everything to sort of you know continue as normal, but sort of start from the beginning sort of thing. You know, so um, at the start, I wasn't allowed to lift anything heavier than five kilos. Um, I wasn't allowed to bend forward, things like that, you know. So um, that was for about the first sort of maybe eight, nine weeks after surgery. Um, and then, you know, when I'm in the gym, I just I just take it really easy. I'm just I'm just doing really light stuff and you know, just not pushing myself too much, but also just trying to get back into some sort of routine for me as well you know because it helps me mentally to have something to look forward to as well and feel like I'm taking care of my health as well and well this was going to be gym related question but I suppose it's just a general question in, in regards to like your coordination and busyness is, is has that been a factor in the gym or have you been okay with that um I've been all right sometimes I still get a bit of blurred vision which can be a bit strange um I would never do anything heavy without having somebody there um I use a lot of assisted machines as well um because it, that just makes me feel more confident as well um but yeah I'd say so the sort of cognitive issues that I have now are more um, like concentration and sort of retaining information, things like that, rather than anything to do with like movement or um, anything else really. So, you know, the stuff that I am still experiencing, I guess, doesn't really affect what I'm doing in the gym. We'll wrap up with two things and obviously your main reason for doing this was to raise awareness. Is there anything you want to cover? Is there anything I've not asked that you want to bring up or want to highlight? I think for me, it's just, I just, so brain tumours are, and, the, and, and research into brain tumours is massively underfunded, you know, so, and I think, I don't know if that shows with, sort of how my diagnosis went you know why it took so long 
down to you know the sort of not that I was treated badly in hospital but just down to how it was in hospital for me as well you know because I've got um my mother-in-law at the minute she's um going through chemotherapy for uh, breast cancer and just her treatment has and the way they've been in touch with her and they've informed her of everything and the appointments that she's had and but breast cancer is there's a lot of it's massively funded you know there's a lot of research that goes into it um and I just think for something as serious as as brain tumors especially when they you know if, you, if you're talking about the cancerous types they affect a lot of young people as well you know so for something that does mainly affect um young younger people children as well are really affected by brain tumors it, it, i just can't understand why there isn't enough funding into it but it's because they're seen as rare basically i think it's something like twelve thousand people in the uk every year are diagnosed with some form of a brain tumor which sounds like a lot but it's not you know so because it's seen as one of the rarer things, it's just not sort of, I guess there's just not as much funding into it. So, you know, I think it's good to raise awareness around the symptoms for people to be aware of when they should start asking questions, you know, and anyone who's experiencing, you know, if, if you notice things, I think people think of a seizure as, as someone passing out and having a fit, which is not always how seizures happen. You know, people can um, be sat upright and just sort of stare into space and not realise that they've done it and they won't remember anything from that, that period of time and they can last for a few seconds, a few minutes and they've just completely zoned out. That That is a type of seizure, you know? so anyone who notices symptoms like that, along with things like headaches and, you know, potential sinus issues, blurred vision, you know, anything that isn't right, you have a right to have your health looked at, you know, and I just, for me, I would hate for anyone to go through what I've been through and it to get to the point where they, there is no treatment available to them you know for me it was you have one option and it is surgery so I had I had no other option I had to have the surgery you know so I would hate for someone to go beyond that point where there wasn't even that available to them so speaking of funding if anyone does want to make a donation where's the best place for them to go so there's um, a, a couple of charities um, that I've done some fundraising for. One of them is the Brain Tumor Charity. So if you just go straight onto their website, I'm pretty sure that there is a donate button um, on their homepage. And then there is Brain Trust and Brain Tumor Research as well. So you can donate to any of those and all of it goes into... Um, obviously helping to fund different research and also raising awareness um, supporting campaigns and things like that to help people spot the signs basically which is 
just massively important. Perfect. Great time to finish. Everyone get your credit cards out, head over to those websites and throw a bit of money their way. Um, Jodie, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure.